Hi, I'm Pastor Jeremy, and welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. So whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus, or you're exploring what faith in Him might look like, we're glad you're here. It is our prayer that through our sermons, you might better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. Today I'll be reading from Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own, un- own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Hey, uh... I suspect that many of you would agree with me when I say that Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, it's one of the more recognizable passages in the New Testament. For centuries, theologians of all rank have mined this, this scripture for its teaching about Christ emptying himself of all divine privilege to bring salvation to a lost world. It's a beautiful passage, almost poetic. I suspect many of you have even memorized parts of it at some point in your life. I mean, it's amazing to think about what God incarnate did for us, leaving his glory, stooping down to our level to deliver us from sin and death. But this humble servant attitude of Christ Uh, It's not just about what the Son of God did for us in the story of redemption. It's it's also the way we are called to live our lives every day. Humility and service belong at the core of our relationships. And it's not optional. Anyone who desires to be a part of God's kingdom must have the same attitude that Christ displayed when he came to earth, as the New Living Translation puts that verse, you, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So, where's the rub? <laughs> Why is this so hard for us? Well, we, we struggle with humility because of our natural attitude towards ourselves and towards others. I mean, think about it. If you're psychologically healthy and you're physically able then you, you, you want to do well in life. You know, if you're, unless you're a crazy person, 
Like you want your relationships to get better. You want your career path to kind of go on an upward trajectory. You want your accumulated wealth to increase rather than decrease. No sane person wants their life to go in the toilet. But, but here's the problem. As we attempt to pursue, let's call it a great life, we, I think we can mistakenly envision these progressive strides that we make. We, we can kind of confuse these things into thinking that they're sort of like steps up a ladder that somehow uh, put us kind of in a higher position in relation to other people. So, so our, our natural selfish bent, as well as the influence of worldliness, can, can cause us to hunt for success at the expense of or to the neglect of others. Now, history doesn't help much either, because the historical record is full of, of declarations of greatness that, that get reserved primarily for people who accomplish feats that bring abundant wealth or glory to themselves. So you think of um, Alexander the Great and his... Um, geographical conquering prowess, or Germany's uh, Frederick the Great with his military and cultural competence, or Catherine the Great and, and how she uh, had this great savvy ability to westernize Russia. <clears throat> As humans, we just have a hard time uh, figuring out or sorting out the whole greatness thing in life. On more than one occasion, Jesus had the opportunity to discuss greatness with his disciples because they loved to bring up the topic. On more than one occasion, you know, they, they had these arguments amongst themselves about who was the greatest or who was going to hold the positions of the highest authority in the kingdom of God. And probably one of the most bizarre occurrences of these, um, you know, the times when the disciples brought it up was at the Last Supper. Ironically, ironically, right after Jesus had just washed their dirty feet, you know, they, they started into this debate. Luke 22 records it. He says, within minutes, they were bickering over who of them would end up to be the greatest. <laughs> but Jesus intervened. Kings like to throw their weight around, and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. But it's not going to be that way with you. <clears throat> Let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. Who would you rather be, the one who eats the dinner or the one who serves the dinner? You'd rather eat and be served, right? But I've taken my place among you as one who serves. Constantly, Jesus taught his followers that true greatness serves. True greatness serves. Most people in the world, they don't naturally gravitate to this perspective. But it is at the core of God's thinking. There, there's, you know, there's a lot of talented people in the world, but the measure of true greatness in the annals of eternity is the capacity of the heart to humble itself and serve others. That's okay? Sounds okay. okay. To be um, unselfish, to uh, see the needs and desires of others as more important than their own, no matter who we are. Regardless of our, our strength and our speed, um, our our intelligence, our humor, our creativity, our wit, or uh, even our musical ability. Our goal should be an attitude that leads us to a lifestyle of humility, where our desire is to lower, lower rather than elevate ourselves. 
Now, mankind's resistance to this paradigm of humble service, it's, it's clearly seen in our inclination to go vertical rather than horizontal. Instead of moving constantly outwards horizontally in service towards other, we're, we're, we're perpetually aiming for something, something higher, something taller. Yeah, you know, it doesn't take much coaxing to get someone to try to go high. Our little kids show this propensity right, right, right from the get-go, you know, how high they can climb up that tree in the backyard. And you know, we were just at Heather and Michael's cabin this last week, and Libby's three, and now they have this bunk bed in one of the rooms, and this was the first time she slept on the top bunk. And just a look on her face as she climbed the ladder, and you know, she got to you know, sleep up there. She just she felt so good, you know, because she, she's now big and she's, she's high. And, you know, I guess even mountain climbers, right? Climbing Mount Everest, it's the same thing. You know, conquering these, these, these massive mountains. Like, you know, the higher you go, the, the, the greater the esteem. It doesn't just apply to trees or bunk beds or mountains. It's, you know, career aspirations, same thing. We, we strive to ascend the corporate ladder to, to earn higher financial remuneration and to attain greater regard. The human mind, higher, higher always seems better especially if there's a building involved. I mean, we saw that story in the Tower of Babel. Remember, remember their words that they said in uh, Genesis 11? It's recorded, it says, Come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered over the world. Foolishly, they concluded that a tall tower would make them great people. And as you know, the story of God had to remind them that they were way off. <laughs> but, but this inclination for vertical human achievement and for uh, accompanying this, I guess you would call it accompanying arrogance, it, it continued throughout history, making a very fine showing in the, the Middle Ages with its Gothic cathedral building competitions. Some of you know some history, you might know about this, like using innovative architectural technology, astounding new building heights were achieved. And the, the, the Gothic cathedrals, they, they dwarfed their Romanesque predecessors by these different techniques and they could just, you know, build these ridiculously tall buildings for like, for the time period in history. And now it, it involved like the death of a lot of people as sometimes they built them too fast or didn't build them quite right and they came crashing down. But, but the, um, the Gothic cathedrals, as I said, they, they dwarfed the old Romanesque style and a town or a bishop's pride was often uh, connected with the height of its cathedral. So this pursuit of vertical enormity continues to this, this day with our penchant for immense skyscrapers. I mean, it started with the Eiffel Tower and the Empire State Building and the World Trade Center and the Sears Tower and the CN Tower. And now, of course, United Arab Emirates uh, Burj Khalifa in Dubai with its title holding I think they got the height of 2,717 feet. That's almost a kilometer tall. That's, that's the world record now, but you know, somebody's going to have to conquer it. This frenzied construction skyward is a clear indication of our compulsion for vertical grandeur, for, for climbing up that ladder, for amassing trophies of human pride and achievement. Maybe even our quest for deity. You know, we want to be like God. It's ironic, though, isn't it? Us? Trying to be like God, I'm trying to elevate ourselves, whereas Christ, he only wanted to empty himself to be like us, so that he could humbly serve us 
and deliver us from our captivity to sin. This encouragement to step down the ladder and, and serve others is a common theme in Scripture, but nowhere is it clearer than in our passage in Philippians 2, 1 to 11. First, a little context of the passage. If you read the entire book of Philippians, it becomes apparent that there were some relational problems within the church at Philippi. Paul comments on their, their general financial support for him, which he appreciates, and he says, I hope to see you guys sometime in the future. He says, it's a nice letter, but it's, it's obvious that there are some, um, you know, there's some trouble in the home front. Now, judging by the wording in the first four verses of chapter 2, there were obviously some people in the church who were not getting along, and the effort to remedy the situation was uh, not being exerted. <clears throat> Uh, again, if you read the whole book, you, re- you notice in chapter 4, Paul, he clearly identifies at least two of the women who were at odds with each other, and he exhorts them to figure out a way to solve this conflict and get along. He, he encourages the whole church body to help these ladies sort this out and, and get along. But here in chapter 2, he's speaking more, I'd say, generally about relationships, and he, he draws attention to this unique and this uh, counter-cultural attitude that he desires his readers to adopt. Again, verses 1 to 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only, sorry, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, as we hear this, you know, as as a basis for his exhortation, Paul subtly reminds them of some motivational factors that could help them resolve the uh, relational tensions that uh, seem to be evident here. He, he says, Surely the benefits of belonging to Christ should provide an impetus for you to behave properly. The, the love and encouragement that you receive from Christ himself and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, well, these, should, these things should motivate you to heal the discord among you. And then he even adds a, a touch of positive personal pressure. He says, hey guys, this would just make me very happy if you could figure this out, and if you could you know, find a way to get along. And then the directive that Paul gives regarding the, the relational healing, it's, it's threefold. In verse 2, he gives this plea for oneness, <clears throat> for unity. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3 calls for lowliness or meekness. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then verse 4 addresses helpfulness. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, there's quite a few commands there in these three verses, but they're all rooted in the principle of humility and and self-sacrifice, stepping down the ladder so to speak. The only way a church body can be of one mind is, is if 
Uh, you know, everyone is prepared to sacrifice their own agendas where necessary. And I would say through calm, collaborative discussions, while maintaining a healthy respect for any relevant scriptural teaching, I believe a congregation can discern the Lord's will in a church meeting. <laughs> One of those <laughs> you know, complicated issues of your church meetings, no matter how hard it could be at times. When all its members maintain a healthy love for God, they will in turn just have a, a more natural love uh, you know, for, uh, for others. And, and there's just a greater desire to work together with one mind and one purpose. You know, when everyone in the church assumes a, an unselfish posture, it's just, things can't help but go more smoothly. It's, it's hard to be angry. It's hard to be angry at a selfless person because their every gesture has your good in mind. So when no one is vainly trying to impress others and everyone's committed to regarding everyone else as more important than themselves, I mean, there's almost no chance of discord. The music sounds so sweet because humility is the most powerful generator of harmony. Humility is the, is, is the most powerful generator of harmony. And the humble, servant-minded person, well, they're just going to be the most helpful one in the group. When we operate out of a paradigm of servanthood, it's, it's only natural to be thinking of the other person's interest first. When, when someone is, see, when someone's kind of preoccupied, with climbing their ladder of, say, personal, social, or vocational um, significance. They're, they're sort of focusing on that. They're, they're not really thinking about other people. They're more thinking about themselves, and they're, they're more thinking about the danger, the implications. Well, if I take that the step up to the next rung, you know, what's that going to mean? You know, what's it, what, so they're, they're kind of scheming in their mind how that it kind of affects them because they're concerned about making that successful step up to the next rung. So, you know... When you're doing that, like I say, you're principally thinking about yourself. But, but a humble servant first regards what will please someone else. Stepping down a rung or two down the ladder, it, it does wonders for, for healing relationships because it is at that moment that we're most like Christ. You know, and stepping down our ladder also has a miraculous way of achieving God's purposes. There we forget <laughs> the very plan of salvation was accompanied through such an act of humility. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So humans have a, a propensity to try, you know, either to be like God or to be their own God. And, and wrapped up in this desire is a natural inclination to, to elevate, to pump our own tires, to feed our massive egos, to, to raise ourselves to a higher status, to to attain some form of perceived greatness, kind of higher up the ladder. For Christ, on the other hand, wanted to go down the ladder. He wanted to be human so that he could obey his Father's plan and purchase our eternal redemption with his precious blood, allowing us to have eternal and joyful fellowship with the Father. Now, when I think about this passage, I don't know over the years I've thought about it a lot. I, I can't pretend, I can't even pretend to, 
I didn't say fully understand. I don't know how much I understand, but I certainly, I, I can't fully understand what it meant for Christ to empty himself to come to earth. As the second person of the Trinity, he is divine and of utmost preeminence. According to the Gospel of John, Christ is the agent through whom God the Father brought all creation into being. According to Colossians 1, he's the one who currently sustains all of creation by his mighty power. And as the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature, his very equal. Truly, Christ had every right to stay put in heaven. And suggest to the Father, eh, can we do this another way? Surely there's another way we could do this. But he gave up that right, and he took the humble position of a slave. And he went from divine and glorious ruler of the universe, this vulnerable little baby. You know, I thought about this more this year, probably than I ever have. Like, I'm 60-something, and so I've thought about Christmas a lot over the years. But it's, it's like it's the first year it really hit me. I'm not exactly sure if it worked this way, but I'm thinking at one second, at one second in our time frame, anyway, he, Jesus is the supreme ruler of the universe. And then in the next second, he's an embryo. I, I, I don't know what that embryo knew. I don't know what, when Jesus knew he was the Son of God. Like, I don't know, you know, maybe think about this too in the story. Like, when did he actually know things? But I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. I don't know, it just hit me as the most powerful. We talk about it, sing about it every year, but this really hit me this year. Like, I guess this one second is here, and the next second he's an embryo. And, and you know, and so vulnerable. Not, not just in the perils of being a, a newborn, but like even in his story, having to flee to Egypt because he's got to, he's got to run away from these angry, jealous uh, king and other crazy people. And then working with his father as he grows up as a simple carpenter, he eventually launched into a ministry that, that led him to be hated and, as we sang this morning, spat upon, mocked and whipped and tortured and then eventually cruelly murdered all while bearing the weight of our sin in his body on the cross. And that's something else. We, we, we don't get, you know, when we talk about the crucifixion, we often focus in on the horrors of the crucifixion death, but you've got to remember thousands of people went through that in history, not to, to belittle it, but I mean, it, it, we, we can't just focus on just the, the physical elements of the torture. I think, I mean, as horrible as that was, it's the bearing of the sin. And it, when you think of some of the guilt, you're one person amongst the billions of people that have lived. You think about the guilt and, and the weight and the horrors or the destruction of sin that's happened in your life at some point. And you just think of the horror of sin in your life. Maybe even just one year of your life. And maybe you're one day, one event. And to think that he is bearing the penalty and the weight of all the sin, of all the billions of people, I mean, we can't even begin to fathom what he experienced on the cross in bearing the weight of our sin. That's the gracious thing that he chose to do. That was, it's our pastor says, that's the attitude he assumed. And that's the attitude we are called to assume. Not just because it will heal relational tensions, which it can, but also because it's the high calling of the kingdom of God. Like Christ, we are called to voluntarily give up what we think we have the right to keep. 
We're called to empty ourselves of selfish claims. We're called to make our way down the ladder. You know, from a strictly human, from a strictly human and kind of a logical standpoint, you, you know, think about it, you, you, you've got some perceived rights that uh, you, you sort of feel like you possess, right? Just kind of from a human standpoint, you, you have the right to personal comfort. You've worked hard to get it. Uh, you have the, the right to spend freely on yourself. You've earned it. You have the right to brag and feel proud, you know, after all you've achieved in life. You have the, the right to be upset with other people after how they've treated you. You have the right to me time after all you've sacrificed for others. You, you have the right to hold on to your kids after everything you've put into them and put up with. <laughs> You, you have the right to put all your degrees behind your signature because obviously you, know, you worked hard to get those. You may even feel that you have the right to be self-centered because after all, like nobody else is looking out for you. It's natural for the human heart to want to wanna lay claim to certain rights. But as always, the gospel is counter-cultural. Instead of tenaciously clinging to these rights, we're called to be like Jesus. Christ possessed all the rights and privileges of divinity, no, no debate. But he sacrificed those rights, and he did the will of his Father. We're called to do the same, to have the same attitude of humility and sacrifice and obedience. In defense of the true message of the gospel, this is not something we muster on our own. This is not a message of try harder. We don't drum up a heavy dose of humility by vigorous effort. No, our, our natural resources, they, just, they don't go that deep. The ability to have a God-sized humble attitude comes not from superior human effort, but from our position in Christ through His grace. As believers, Christ alone is the source of this humility. Remember His words, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you believe the words of Jesus? Apart from me, and do nothing. Our, our good, humble attitude, like, like all goodness in the world, comes from God through Christ. Our faith in His riches it, is what makes it a reality in our lives. And, and having been crucified with Christ, as Galatians 2.20 says, maybe the most important verse in the Bible, my bias, having been crucified with Christ, it's no longer our life. But Christ lives in me, and the life we now live, we live by faith in Christ. Notice how the ESV translation uh, translates verse 5 in our passage. Some, some translations, such as the New American Standard and others, and this is probably the one most of us are more familiar with, it, it reads something like, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, so that's where most of us, our brains are kind of, we're used to that phrasing. But the ESV translates it quite interestingly. It says, and it's a viable option, I looked at the Greek. It says, have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Understanding the nature of the gospel leads me to believe that this may be the more accurate translation. Because just, you know, looking at the two of them, there's quite, quite a difference you can take from those two uh, translations. For, but we have to think about it. Jesus is not just my good example that I try hard to copy. No, Jesus is my source of everything. He is my meaning. He is my identity. He is my freedom, my strength, my satisfaction, my hope, my all. Through faith in Christ and by His grace, we can live up to the billing of this passage. We can exhibit this remarkable selfless attitude that our Lord displayed so that we may better serve our Heavenly Father's eternal purposes for His glory. Now, but for those who are looking in from the inside, uh, from the outside, sorry, a little warning. This attitude of humility, service, sacrifice, obedience to, to God's will, it's not, as the world would see, it's not a sign of weakness. It's not any indication of being a loser or a wimp. No, far from it. As we read in the rest of our passage, the result of Christ's humiliation is his divine exaltation. Because he emptied himself fully of all that he could have been tempted to cling to, verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One day, one day, every knee will bow. It gets me excited. Every tongue will confess, and all glory will go to the Lamb who was slain. He will be fully compensated for his sacrifice, as will we. Our sacrifice will never go unnoticed. Those who lose their lives for Christ will one day find them again, richly enhanced. I mean, as Christ's brothers and sisters, we're fellow heirs of the new earth. Those who humble themselves before the Lord will one day be exalted. And those who overcome that great theme of the book of Revelation, overcoming, those who overcome sin and temptation and compromise and persecution in this age, when you overcome those things, will one day reign with Christ as kings and priests forever. So here then is the simple conclusion to the matter on this January 1st, New Year's Day. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Instead of scheming this year how we might try to elevate our position in any given environment, by faith in Christ's resources, we need to be constantly searching for ways to lower ourselves. I mean, think about it. If we keep lowering ourselves, we get down low enough, we end up on the ground. Your people's feet. And lo and behold, Look who's down there with us, washing those feet. 
we need to find a way to make our way down the ladder so that by His grace, we may properly imitate the one who total, totally emptied himself for our sakes. That glorious one who fulfilled heaven's wonderful plan of love that enables us to become children of God and intimately connected eternally with the maker of everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your patience with us. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice you made. Give us eyes to see it better, to understand this emptying that you did. And you had the right to hang on to those rights that you had, Lord. And we often make rights up in our head and we think we, we deserve things and we make claims and our egos are just a big problem. So, Lord, I just pray that you would help us understand what you have done in a better way and that your Spirit would reveal it to our hearts so that by your grace we might find ways to make it down the ladder, that we might assume those positions of obedience and service and humility. For your glory, in Jesus' name.